and training becomes an event or something that they come in and say, well, we just need to train people to prospect better, or we just need to train people to close better, close more effectively. That's the one thing we're missing, right? And, and they don't see it as a system. And what I found is most important thing is they don't take a mirror and hold it up to themselves and say, okay, how am I arming this team to be better at what they do? Hi, friends. Welcome to the WinRate Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Paul Fuller. And Paul is one of my guests on this episode of the WinRate Podcast. Paul Fuller is the Chief Revenue Officer for Membrane. And my other guest today for this conversation about sales effectiveness, the buyer experience, and increasing win rates is Carol Mahoney. Carol is the founder of Unbound Growth, and she's the author of a new book titled Buyer First, Grow Your Business with Collaborative Selling. Now, one item of business before we jump into today's discussion. If you have any questions about B2B selling, sales effectiveness, and maybe how to increase your win rate that you'd like to have answered either by me or any one of my guests, you can submit your questions and we'll answer those during the program. You can submit those to winratepodcast at gmail.com or just DM me, Andy Paul, on LinkedIn. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you and hear your questions. Okay, if you're ready, let's jump into the discussion. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm so excited to have everybody with me this week. Carol Mahoney, Paul Fuller, Sean Burke. Take a minute, introduce yourself real quickly. I'm Sean, we'll start with you. Sure. Great to be here, by the way, Andy, and nice to meet you both. It is. It's been a while. So Sean Burke, I'm the Chief Operating Officer at Prometric. We're one of the world's largest assessment com companies. So if you, you want to become a doctor, an attorney, a CPA, you come into one of our centers, we assess you. Hopefully you pass with flying colors and have a great experience. And so uh, I run the entire commercial team across the globe and 14,000 test centers, about 7 million tests per year, roughly about a $4 million company. And we, my team does everything from before a, a client would be become a client all the way through delivery, the whole cycle, all reports up through me. So again, happy to be here. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Pleasure to have you back. Carol? Thank you, Andy, for having me. I'm Carol Mahoney. I am the founder of Unbound Growth, where we use a cognitive behavioral approach to improve sales performance more predictably with coaching, training, and helping sales teams to hire the right people for the right role to begin with. And I am also the new author of Buyer First, Grow Your Business with Collaborative Selling, my first book of probably many. And my aim for this book is to change the way people see sales and the way that people create buying experiences for their buyers. Perfect. Perfect. Excellent. On point. We're going to talk about some of that. Almost like sales therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy. To... Yeah. Well, I do have Harvard professors that call me a sales therapist for a reason, I think. But I am oh. not a therapist, nor have I. Well, I've been to one long enough that I should probably have the honorary degree at this point. Right. You spent enough on it that you think you should earn a degree. Yes. Yeah, I, exactly. I've, I've experienced that myself. Yes. I'm Paul Fuller. Hey, thanks for having me. I am Chief Revenue Officer of Membrane.com. We are a sales enablement CRM, essentially, that's really focused on one thing a little bit different in the market as elevating the sales profession. And we think we, we do that by helping give tools that build habits, be able to build in methodologies and processes directly into a CRM that actually work and help people sell. And so I get one of the best jobs in the world. We partner with about 130 sales consultants and sales professionals, major ones around the world. 
and I get to work with them every day to help them and their partners drive their methodologies and processes throughout CRMs and sales teams. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And your messaging, you sort of talk, yeah, my love language, which is how you sell more important than what you sell. And, you know, we'll sort of lead that as into the conversation today because it's seemingly more and more the case every day, right? That we're getting data that mm-hmm. says that this experiential part of the buying, selling experience is really what's driving decisions. Gartner, a few weeks ago at their conference, published this report, and we all saw the graph, I think, on LinkedIn. The nine primary reasons that influence, are factors that influence a selection of a vendor. And I showed that to a, a group of people I was talking to yesterday, and I said, sellers, and so, so tell me what's missing. The nine most important factors in a decision. And they're like, oh, there's no product on this. Oh, there's no price on this. And it was all factors of trust and adaptability and how you sell and understanding the buyer's business and so on that six or seven of the nine factors were purely experiential. Mm-hmm. So why are we still seemingly training salespeople to go out and pitch products? I think here's, it's an interesting question that you start with. And the, we do have that tagline, how you sell matters. And we had this big, uh, one of those fun sales conversations that you get in with like Henrik and George, and I know they're a couple of founders. And we really focused on the words of that the other day. And that's how you sell matters. Like not how you sell, it's not necessarily the process. It's not necessarily the methodology, but it's how the person that you adopts that process methodology, makes it their own and gives the experience to the buyer. Right. Right. And, and is able to work with them. And, and while process is incredible, like I think it's one of the most important things in sales. I think methodology is one of the most important things in sales, but then having the people and the skills that can drive in and they can own it, take it, make it their own and actually be themselves with a group is so absolutely critical. Oh. I was about to push back on what you said, Paul, but then you ended it in a way that made me want to push back on it less because. <laughs> push back. Yes. So, well, in sales, and this was, I think, the reason that so many people see sales as pushy, slimy, and sleazy, as Andy wrote in his book, as Daniel Pink wrote in his book to sell in human years ago, is because we see sales as something we do to other people. I'm going to sell you on this. I'm going to convince you of this. Instead of looking at it as sales being something that we do with other people. If you look up the definition of sales, mm-hmm. it is an exchange of value, an exchange, a collaboration, a back and forth between two people. So selling isn't the reason that sales has got into the place that it is today is because we have focused so much on what the tactics are and the techniques are and not digging into the root causes of why those tactics and techniques tend to fall short. We all know we should be actively listening. We all know we should be asking good questions. Why don't we do it in the moments that we need to do it with our buyers? And so digging into the beliefs and mindsets that we have about sales and that exchange, I think, is the key to transforming how we sell. So answer yeah. your own question. Before we get to Sean, answer your own question. Why don't we do those things? Because we have a preset beliefs and limiting beliefs on what it means to do those things. So for example, I've done coaching at Harvard Business School. And when their students came to me for coaching and they got pushback at the number of questions that they didn't ask, their belief was, what they said to me was, if I ask too many questions, aren't they going to think that I don't know what I'm talking about? And so it's this belief system that we have towards an action 
that makes us do those actions in a way that are not receptive to the way buyers want to be communicated with and building trust with them. We think of it as something we need to do to them. I need to convince you and manipulate you or do these things. And we don't think about the actual exchange and our mindsets towards those actions, which is exactly what will impact how we do them, if we even do them at all. So what you're saying is the aspiring masters of the universe that are coming out of Harvard Business School have been taught that not knowing the answer to something is being too vulnerable. In a sense, I looked at it more of that their need for approval or their need to have be seen in a certain way. I need to be seen as smart. I need to be seen as likable in order for people to buy from me is what is actually getting in their way of being smart and likable because they're trying to project an image of themselves onto someone else. Sean, what's your take? Yeah. So first of all, I think it's good for us to kind of clarify what space we're in because sales to smaller organizations is a little bit different. Our average deal size is over a million dollars. So we're selling enterprises and many of the deals that I'm involved with are above $5 million. Their contracts are there long. And so these are year long pursuits, sometimes multiple year pursuits. So when I think about sales and working with our team, I think about it being almost a service for the client. Because right now we're finding that buyers are really having a hard time making a decision effectively within their business. And it's not uncommon for them to really struggle. And so for us, we do things uniquely with them that shows them that we try to sit in their side of the table. So for example, Every single one of our prospective clients, we have to take their test. So I literally had one of my salespeople sit for the law exam. I'd never been an attorney before, obviously not very familiar with the law. And when we did the win-loss analysis on that, on that account, we actually had the buyer come to our kickoff. And they said, one of the first reasons why we decided to go with you is you actually sat through the test and gave us five pages of notes about that, what that experience was and how you could make that experience better with, it wasn't even us. Like it, it was like, how could that experience be better even with some of the things that we do and without? So I think as we advance in sales and buyers require more from us, I think really digging in and trying to understand how you can help them as well as like, I'm one of the first people to say, if I hear something and I know that we can't do something for a client, I will literally tell them, I'm like, I don't think we're fit for you. Here's the reason why. And I think that's a service. I think that's something that a lot of salespeople feel compelled that they need to keep selling and they need to keep doing things. I'm like, you do not need to do that. If it is not a good fit going in, it'll definitely not be a good fit going out. And we just need to be honest about it. So I think for me, it's a for delivery for the client if you do it well. Right. All right. So I'm going to sort of put you on the spot a little bit, Sean, because, you know, just in conversations I had with people on the show prior to this episode is sort of acknowledgement. We're talking about, well, where sort of this problem sort of starts emanate in terms of sales and the way sales is, is sort of treated and developed within an organization. And general consensus sort of starts at the top right? Is that the pressure sellers feel the unreasonable goals that are set start sort of at the top. 
and that it sort of flows downhill. So people don't feel empowered to stop selling because I have these pipeline goals and I need to make sure I've got enough activity going through as opposed to really focusing on, hey, how are we really being effective in the moment? Are we really harvesting the right percentage, you know, win rate, the right percentage of opportunities coming out through the pipeline? And I know not saying putting that you're doing this with your organization, but yeah, how are we going to be able to change sales unless and selling unless really senior management says, look, there's a better way to be doing this. Because for me, it's oftentimes senior manager, senior leadership, that's not very enlightened about you know, how we develop people and how we coach performance, how we train performance, what are we looking for in terms of productivity and so on. So wow, there's a the whole class of leaders. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in that, Andy. So uh, let me try to break it into chunks <laughs> and I'll just share with sure. you how I do it. And it's been, it's worked well for us. So for me, it starts with understanding what's really possible within your organization. So we do a lot of math around our business. And so we know going into a year what our revenue is, what the likelihood of pipeline conversions and things like that is. And we have a discussion within our senior leadership team, even to the board, about the, what the likely scenarios could be. And so there's there for us, it's not trying to set up unrealistic expectations of what the business can do. And if we do put unrealistic, like if our math doesn't work out, then anything that's in addition to our math is something that's upside for us. It's not the number that we go into for the year. And so this approach takes us down into what quotas we give, how we break out the numbers, et cetera, et cetera. So then if we go in the sale, what I find is the more salespeople are pressured to sell and the less experience they have, the worse they do. And so right. I think... What I see is salespeople that are confident that literally have the client's best wishes and the and best feedback and, and then mix that with what they see across all clients. Like it's very common for us to have prospective clients talk to existing clients that have just purchased from us and about all the, mm -hmm. the hard things that they've gone through and like right. what they did wrong and all those things. So I think when you start to put a ton of pressure on teams, number one, it usually is that you're putting unrealistic goals on the business that you just don't have a way to get them. And you're just like, look, you got to go out and figure out how to get these numbers, which is always great. It's like, how do you win a game? Well, just go out there and figure it out. It's going to be really hard. I, I tend to not like to take play that harder. approach. Yeah, just play harder. Just hit them harder. Right. Like, do better. Just yeah, that's right. And so I think for us, that's worked out really well. And I, I have a really good revenue ops and sales enablement team and sales ops team that really get involved in the deals and working. And, and what I find is my reps that do the best work for our clients and get the best results are the ones that really don't feel the pressure to close at a certain time or try to artificially maneuver a deal a certain way. What they try to do is understand more and more about what's going on in the business and what the real concerns are there and try to get out ahead of them. Because it is true right now what we find is when deals get very close to the closing, people get scared. And all of a sudden there's a ton of like all the, like there's like five more people that show up at the end because now people know that it's getting close. And so for that, it's almost like the, the, the hardest form of discovery we do there. So we can help mm -hmm. get out ahead of the, the questions that they're having. So, so that, that approaches work well for us. 
And now, a message from Closed. An often overlooked way to improve your win rate is to identify and close win-back opportunities. After conducting tens of thousands of buyer interviews, Closed has found that 10% of closed loss deals have the potential to be won back at some point in the future. Now, identifying these win-back opportunities early and knowing when and how to follow up could be worth millions. Closed recently helped one of their customers identify and win a $500,000 win-back opportunity within days of it being marked as closed lost. Closed automatically reached out to perform a win-loss interview when the deal was marked closed loss in the CRM. And the buyer said, well, actually, we're still interested and we're ready to sign the contract. Closed is finding win-back deals on a daily basis for their clients. How about for you? To help you get started receiving the value of consistent, direct, candid feedback from your buyers, Closed is offering all my listeners a free gift. Just go to winlosstoolkit.com and they'll send you a bunch of valuable tools to help you get your win-loss program started. The toolkit includes a comprehensive guide to running a successful win-loss program, an ROI calculator, and they'll even perform your first win-loss interview for free to help you see the value of getting feedback directly from your buyers. So to claim your gift, visit winlosstoolkit.com. That's winlosstoolkit.com. And now a message from Alego. Are you struggling to make your sales team more efficient and improve time to productivity? With Alego's modern revenue enablement platform, marketing sales and enablement teams get on the same page for continuous improvement. So break through all the noise and deliver the buying experiences that your buyers today demand. Enable faster ramp times for your rep and more revenue for your business in less time. See how it all can work for you. Go to alego.com slash demo. That is alego.com slash demo. Paul, how about you? I, I think to go back to your question, right? And I love that answer with that high pressure, low experience equals poor performance. Right. And so what I see a lot of times, I've dealt with a lot of founders in sales and a lot of times exactly it. They will have unrealistic expectations relative to where the business can go. And then they're at that time, they're only able to hire uh, very inexperienced uh, reps. And so when you start to put that stuff together, you find that it just, it doesn't work. And then training becomes an event or something that they come in and say, well, I just, we just need to train people to prospect better. Or we just need to train people to close better, close more effectively. That's the one thing we're missing, right? And, and they don't see it as a system and they don't do the most important. What I found is most important thing is they don't take a mirror and hold it up to themselves and say, okay, how am I arming this team to be better at what they do? How am I, how do I make that my job continually? Uh, I just was meeting with a couple of partners the other day and we were talking about an event we'd like to run. We were literally calling it why leaders build sales teams that are ineffective. And the very first event in that, we're talking about how do we hold up a mirror to the, and it's targeted at companies that are like between five and 50 million, right? So five, and a lot of times that founder owner is, has been the best salesperson in that organization. And they think that everybody else can do it like they did. So being able to hold up that mirror and say, no, th this is a profession that takes a ton of training. It takes a ton of support. You got to have a good team behind you. You got to be working a good process and you got to be investing in those salespeople as leaders because sales is a, a true leadership competency. So 
That's what that's what I was thinking when I heard the question. <laughs> well, I'll change a little bit for Carol and get back to Sean with this too. So what, in your mind, what is effective selling? Because you talked about being more effective. And it's just like, does anybody really understand what effective selling is? How about you, Carol? What's effective selling? I think of effective selling as a collaboration because, again, going back to the definition of sales, it's an exchange of value. Price is the proof of that value and closing is a proof of that value. And so I think of selling as a collaboration and coming up with what is the best solution for this particular issue in this particular problem. And on top of that, when we talk about leadership and why leadership creates some of the very problems that they need to solve for, we also need to think in terms of how they were brought up in sales and what they see selling at and whatever their mindsets and beliefs are. One of the things that a lot of the companies I work with don't fully realize is that it's leadership's own mindsets and beliefs towards sales that become contagious to the rest of their team that causes a lot of the behaviors that they're trying to solve for. Mm -hmm. For example, how many CEOs or COOs or CROs who are trying to buy some type of technology or something for their team insists on getting discounts and getting the lowest price and then are wondering why their team struggles with their getting their customers to avoid getting discounts and avoid going after the lowest price because that's how they buy, that's how they think about buying, and it becomes actually contagious to the rest of their team. So that's one way that companies create the problems that they solve. But to Sean's point, I see this happen every day where you're getting the pressure from the board, from the investors, from the private equity company and the leadership to hit these particular numbers. I, I actually had someone who I was just talking with last week who they have a uh, $3 million revenue growth goal that they want to accomplish with a team that didn't hit their numbers last year, but now they suddenly want that team to do twice as much with the same amount of resources and skills. This is how we create these problems. And this is how we create this perception of sales as being pushy, slimy, and sleazy, because now we're forcing these inexperienced salespeople and sometimes even somewhat experienced salespeople into situations where they have to violate their own ethics and their own morals to make something happen or they're going to lose their job. So, so we're creating like, the very out of desperation. Exactly. And desperation has the biggest stink to a buyer than anything else that I can think of. Talk about putting up a huge brick wall to being able to build trust and rapport and collaboration with someone. When you get someone who's desperate who will say yes to whatever it is that you want, there's no way you're going to trust that person. So Sean, how do you measure sales effectiveness? Yeah. So this may be a bit contrarian. I probably take a very different view than most people on sales effectiveness. The way I look at what we'll call it sales effectiveness is when we're sitting down with a client, they either have a problem or an opportunity that is causing us to work with them or even investigate this. So for mm -hmm. me, being effective is either solving that problem or capitalizing on that opportunity. And it goes beyond the day that deal is closed, it's us delivering right. what we said we would do for them. And that doesn't, I don't care a thing about close ratios there or any of those numbers or this pressure or whatever. If you continually solve problems that are clearly defined, articulated, and capitalize on opportunities post-sale and through the life of the relationship, then you have an effective sales team and an effective company because you're delivering on what the commitment is that you have between the two organizations. So you must have some way to, to measure that, though. We do. We are in, in, in most every single one of our 
sales opportunities. Again, these are large, these are enterprise deals. Sure. We actually have key criteria that the, the client brings to us that we need to meet in the delivery of our services to them. And that becomes part of our client success measures once the deal is done. And we even mm -hmm. continue like SLAs are in there and timing commitments and experience commitments. So it's kind of like you build through the process what the post sale will look like. And then you use, and by the way, these are all part of my team. That's why we built my role the way that it is. Whatever we agreed upon before the deal needs to be measured and managed after the deal. And then that's really how we do it in our organization. But some number of those are going to be, those pursuits are going to be unsuccessful. So you can't completely ignore, you call it conversion rate, I'll call it win rate. You can't completely ignore that because that is a measure no. of the, that is a measure of the value of the buyer's perception, the value of the experience they had with the seller. I, not necessarily. Really? If you think, that, if you, yeah, if you think that the close ratio is a value of what the seller does, then you're assuming that the seller has a solution to a problem or can solve an opportunity when in many cases they can't. And it is good to not so close why, that deal. Why'd they buy? Well, they shouldn't. That's what I'm saying. If you use a close ratio as the measurement of success, many times you should not close. It's not the right fit. So that's what I'm saying is that I would not use the... the uh, now, you're assuming that every client is a perfect fit up front. So that would mean no. that you're measuring no. the... Okay. Yeah. So, so for us, we look at once we've designed the package of what we're going to do together, that's where we really start to measure the close ratio from. Because up until that point, we really don't know if there's a good fit or not. But once we do decide that there is a good fit, then we think that our ability to bring that entirely home is a much better measure than the early part of the sales process where there's still a lot to sure. figure out. Right. But if, if you have five opportunities you're working on, a, let's say in a month and five close and you win two of them, what's that telling you in your process? So you're saying we close two out of five? Yeah. So for you me, won. what it tells you won, you won two out of five. Yeah. So what it tells me in general is that there was a good fit between us, that we had a good solution. We were able to work through an effective sales process and that the client also agreed that there was a good fit to it and that we were a good match. My question though is why wouldn't you have said we really should in this instance, we really should be winning three of the five. We invested I, I, this much time and effort in it. And yeah, well, you're assuming that you take it the, the whole way, way through. Sometimes you can get the right solution at the end. There's contractual terms you can't agree to. So for me, there's times where you do have to kind of walk away at the end. Okay. Yeah, sure. Fair. Okay. Anybody else have an opinion on this? Carol? I have a big opinion. Yeah. <laughs> Go. Well, there's one metric that I don't know of any company that actually measures this. But to me, I think that this is the ultimate metric of sales effectiveness and success mm -hmm. is how many of your one deals then refer you to other people like them. Because at the end of the day, it still costs more to get a new customer and referrals from to other customers from other customers has the highest win rates, the highest values, and they close faster because of that transfer of trust. And so if you have effectively sold with your buyer and the solution solves the problem, 
then isn't the ultimate reflection of that success when they tell other people to go buy from you as well? And isn't everything that we do trying to drive towards more referrals and introductions so that we can start to scale this more predictably? That's my... Yeah, you hope so. That I- so is, do you think the customers spontaneously do the referrals or you need to ask them? You need to ask. It needs to be a proactive effort. There okay. are going to be times when customers will spontaneously do so. But having a, a system and a process to ask for those referrals and introductions mm-hmm. early in the process, later in the process, I think is going to be the, that's the key, I think, of sales effectiveness. Okay. How about you, Paul? Yeah, I guess I'll be contrarian. Maybe I'll be not contrarian, but I'll be more standard. I, I think there's yeah. four really good ones that, that we use. I think qualified sales projects, like what what is at you can call them pursuits. You can call them whatever you want to call them. But are we able, like as Sean says, are we truly able to solve a problem they have or help them achieve a vision? Like that is super critical. And I would rather have fewer of those than mm-hmm. a million of them because I know the ones that I should be investing in. Right. Out of those, I think it's really important to know our win rate. What are we closing? What are we not closing out of that? that subset, right? Mm-hmm. So absolutely critically important there. And then any company, right? Average deal size, that's absolutely critical for that because, and then sales cycle time. So when I have those four metrics, I can tell you if we increase, we're going up, we're going down, we can increase three of them by 8% and double a company. So I'm always watching those metrics. Now, what's indicative of sales success? I think Sales success to me as I have two two sides of that, right? Which is the end result of the customer and and the revenue and the customer satisfaction. That's where it comes to the the Carol's point, which I think is brilliant. The number of referrals that we're getting from those customers shows the number of the amount of impact that we're delivering to those customers because they're happy. So being able to to understand that impact that we're delivering on an ongoing basis, ask for those referrals and achieve them. Oh my God, that's critical. The other side that I think that people don't get, and this comes a little bit from my background, and my background is I had started a sales as a service company, so we'd hire, train, and manage teams for other organizations. Mm-hmm. I think the leading indicators, I still think that those are so, so important. I think they're actually indicative of sales success. That ability to to network well, that ability to hold meetings across a, a bunch of different a bunch of different people, a bunch of people areas, a bunch of different IC, people within your ICP, the ability to to do that and network really well. So I at the front end, I think that's critical to measure is, and it's not activity for activity's sake, it's can I, through our process and through who I am, get these meetings, understand them, hold them, make them effective. And if they are doing that, then I, as a leader, if somebody could do that really well, then I, as a leader, need to make sure that they are being successful all the way through. So mm-hmm. I gave you a little bit more, I think, than you're asking for, but I, no, I measure I'm- the leading indicators, those four in the middle, and then that one at the end, which is the impact and referrals that I could provide at the end. Now, Sean, you had talked about doing win-loss analysis. Do you do it on every deal, every opportunity? We try to. Right now, we have a, a process where we're only focus on our lost deals. We get, it's one of the best measures for us. 
that we can find is we're going deep into our lost deals. And then I actually will share those out at the board level. It is one of the fastest ways that we learn across the board. And so the win ones are actually pretty easy to get. And so we don't learn a ton from those. It's really the ones that you don't win are the ones that I can then look at and work with our enablement team to to make tweaks to what we're doing. And we do, we are right now. And you do that? No, go ahead. Oh, I thought you were saying, yeah, so we do that internally. Our revenue ops, our sales enablement team does those interviews and they're not surveys. You have to talk to like, especially with the size of deals. Again, I just keep referencing back to mm-hmm. that. You just can't send a survey over and expect to know what really happened. And sometimes those calls can be almost an hour long because they start with, oh, we lost because of this. Mm-hmm. We're like, ah, did you really? And then they're like, you keep going into it and you find all these amazing facts out that you have no idea that happened. And they learn even like they hadn't even thought that was one of the markers for why they chose to, by the way, I'm actually going to be sharing three of our losses with my senior leadership team on Monday. So yes, we do them. And, and we almost use that as like our sales enablement team is almost like an SDR team for our lost deals. They're trying to reach out to them as much as they can to try to get those meetings scheduled. And now a word from Cognizant. Picture this, your revenue team armed with accurate B2B contact data that leaves missed opportunities and unreachable prospects in the past. Look no further than Cognizm, the B2B contact data provider that stands out with unwavering focus on data quality and coverage. Cognizm's U.S. data set alone offers two times more cell phone numbers than any other provider on the market. And it gets even better. 7 million human-verified cell phone numbers backed by a 98% accuracy rate deliver precision like you've never seen before. And if international business growth is on the horizon, Cognizm offers the most complete GDPR-compliant data in Europe, making your expansion dreams more attainable than ever. Customers like Drift have already experienced the power of Cognizm. In just 30 days, they proved ROI and now book 70% of their outbound meetings using Cognizm's cell phone data. But don't take our word for it. Get a free data sample and test the quality for yourself. Head over to Cognizm.com slash data sample to get your free data sample today. That's Cognizm.com slash data sample. There's a study that's done by Closed that one sponsor of the show that, that does win-loss analyses. And they found that sellers on lost deals, sellers only, <laughs> sellers put the right reason for losing into CRM only 15% of the time. Yeah. You know, they, went, gonna, they surveyed oh, buyers. Sure. They, they surveyed the buyers. And are you finding that in yours as well? Oh, 100%. By the way, that list is not just price, product, sales approach or what that list is massively long and it's not one thing. Right. So by the way, I really love what the, the team at closed is doing. They actually do interviews. And so yeah. yeah, that yeah, that yeah, that data is I would find that data very faulty based off of what we actually hear in the interviews. I would not use that to like make decisions on my sales team at all. Yeah, yeah. The, in, in terms of this what the sellers put in the serum. Yeah. For absolutely. sure. Yeah, but yeah, no part, bias is happening there, right? Well, but it's sort of concerning, isn't it? That if your sellers, is it they just don't know or they just don't want to say what the reason is? Or is it a combination of both? I will tell you Anyone. this. I do think it's a combination of both, at least in our case. I think there's just easy ways to do it. By the way, I think 
salespeople and, and Carol may maybe uh, would know about this better than me, but I think it's psychologically hard for salespeople to face the facts as to why they lose. And it's easier just to say price or product or something like that. I don't think they're waiting in line to say, I messed up that deal. And here's the 17 things that I did to, to lose that deal. And so the loss is almost the true serum for them to really do that diagnosis. And they can't do it themselves. They'll never ask those questions to get the insight to exactly. help them. Paul. And even if they did ask the questions, they wouldn't necessarily get honest answers because nobody wants to tell someone how bad sure. they were at something. That's but, right. Yeah, no, absolute value in having a third party do it. Paul, you look yeah. like you were getting ready to say something. I was just going to say, Sean, it, it's brilliant. I absolutely, I absolutely love what you're doing there because I think it it makes a lot of sense. And when we do loss review, like when we're doing a loss review, there are very easy things you could do, like click a button in the CRM. Oh, price is too high. Oh, this, that, the other. But when you really get down and you start to have discussions and th then you have that, one of the things that shows me with your team, Sean, is you are, you must be really invested with each of the prospects, each of the deals that they're, they'll give you that time to do that loss review. That's beautiful. That's brilliant. So I'm taking that from you and we're, we're, I think we'll probably be implementing it in the next couple of months because that's, that is fantastic. Sean Hoffman, when you're doing your win-loss analysis and your loss analysis, I guess in particular, are you, yeah, getting comebacks and regaining opportunities? I haven't seen that yet, but it is not uncommon like we closed a, a pretty significant size deal last year. It was our third attempt to get that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And it was, be I think a lot of it was some of the respect that we have built with that client. Now a client, I could say on how we do what we do and that it kept us at the table. It kept us at the table for them as their business changed. By the right. way, our business was really impacted by COVID. And so a mm -hmm. lot of people made short-term decisions yeah, to react to COVID and now they're going back right. and things are business as usual. So it, it may be just unique to our industry, but yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. So last area I wanted to get into is, and this is one that we talk about a fair amount here is role of quota and the value of quota as a, a measure of sales performance or sales effectiveness or anything. And for those of you who are just listening, you couldn't see Carol's reaction to this. So I'll start with Carol as she surf, pretend like she was thinking for a second. So yeah, you, you probably could hear my eye roll from here, I'm guessing. Yeah, pretty much. So what's your take on that? My take, and I understand the need for quotas because a company needs to be able to allocate what where the revenue is going to come from and how is it going to break down. And in my work with salespeople, nine times out of 10, their quota is BS. And because... What I've often found is that people, some people, will work up until the point where they've met their quota, maybe a little bit above that, and then they start to back off because, you know what, I've done what I need to do. And a lot of times when I'm dealing with low performers or, or medium or mediocre performers, what I'm doing is instead of, I kind of ignore their quota. I don't even, I, I know you have one, I know that you need to meet it, but that's not what our focus is going to be on. Our focus is going to be on what your personal quota is. What's the number that's personally meaningful to you that's going to make a difference in your life when you hit that number? Because that is something that's going to motivate someone to do more, to get up early, to stay later, to work harder, to master their craft, to face up to some uncomfortable truths. It's like being excited to meet your quota is almost as exciting as paying your taxes and student loans. Like nobody gets up, puts their feet on the, mo the floor in the morning and is like, yes, 
met my quota, paid my bills. That's what you do to keep your job and stay out of jail. But, you know, getting up in the morning and knowing that the extra effort that you're putting into your mastering of your own craft is going to help your kids go to a better college or your parents have a better retirement or whatever the thing may be that's going to motivate them to do some hard behavioral changes, which is what changing in sales Mm -hmm. is all about. It has to tie back to something that's meaningful to them. Quotas are just a metric that keeps the company happy. It doesn't necessarily motivate the salesperson. There's no other way to do it other than quota? I mean, if it were me, I would actually do this exercise with each member of my team. And then instead of it being a quota that is handed down, it is something that is bubbled up. These are the numbers that everyone wants to hit. Does that align with what our business goals are? And that's the other part of it is that you have your personal quota, you have your company quota. How does one align with the other? How does this help the company to do the things that they need to do while it also helps you to do the things that you need to do? That's a little bit my somewhat controversial take on it. Sean, what do you think? All right. Wow. Quotas. <laughs> yeah, this is a hot topic. So again, we work extremely hard to make sure that our math is right in our business. It is, I can't even tell you the Herculean effort that we do. So I would say to you, there are things that I look at to see if we have our math right. And and some of those numbers tells me that we're on the right path. So for example, if our sales team, if 70% of them aren't meeting their quota, then something's wrong in the system. So for us, That's one goal that I really look at is, are we measuring the math correctly? Do we have historical performance? Do these numbers, like if a salesperson gets a quota and they're like, how did you do the math? If you can't explain it to them, then you probably shouldn't have assigned it to them. What I find that quota does for certain, some of the, most of the top performers that I have is it's a benchmark for them to use where compensation really starts to kick in and where their personal goals, like Carol had mentioned, really start to kick in. Because almost every single one of my top performers has a W-2 goal at the end of the year, and they need to figure out the path to get to that W-2 goal. And that's where I spend my time with them, regardless if the quote is $2 million or $5 million, whatever it is. My goal is to help them get to their W-2 goal. And by the way, this year, it was great. I actually had one of my top sellers ever send me a Christmas card with her earnings before and after she has met me. And every single year it has gone up. And it's because of the work that we did to do that. So I think that, and by the way, I think that especially when you're run by a publicly traded company or you have private equity or you have a a VC or some level of management that's outside of the senior leadership team, It is very hard to operate a business without quotas because they're just so used to doing it. So what I try to do as a leader is understand the operating environment we're in and make it meaningful and achievable and exciting and motivating to the reps that could do it. And it takes a lot of work to do that. And so I feel really good about when when our team's able to do that. And every single week, I can see where our team is at against their goals. And if someone's like struggling... It gives me the knowledge to go out to them and say, hey, look, what's going on? I know you're like, what's happening? Are these deals pushing? So I don't feel it's a heavy burden on our team as much because I think we're, I think we're doing time, a pretty good which, job in it. Yeah, I think what you're describing is an environment that seems very different than most and that you're taking yeah. a level of care, exercising a level of care and setting it to make sure it's achievable and then also in align with the company goals. 
Yeah. Which, yeah, based on what we all have experienced and or have heard about is not the rule, certainly. Paul? Yeah, I think quota becomes extremely painful when it is that out of thin air pick, right? And so I'm just going to say yes and yes to what both Carol and Sean said. I, and I'm in, because I am in complete agreement to that. I, we take a lot of care on our site. So let's generalize that. If I was going to talk to anybody about quota, I would say you have to, as a leadership team, you absolutely have to go and do the math really well, right? Because mm -hmm. you, if you're expecting everybody to be that superstar, you're wrong. It's not going to happen. Now you want to raise everybody there to that level. But if you set quotas for an organization across, like, so if you have a certain organization, you set quotas that everybody needs to be that superstar when you're going to, you're diluting yourself and you're diluting them. But how we, and you're, for anybody that's a B, B plus player and below, you're setting a very high playing field that's demotivating, not motivating. But then when you use Carol's approach and you go directly to them, and you use Sean's approach and you correctly to them and that, that W2 goal and their quota for their life, that's so maximizing. And if that lines up with the quota that the company can set, that's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And then if it doesn't, you need to be courageous enough as a leader to say sometimes it were not a right fit for your lifestyle and you are not a right fit for this organization. And that's support where I think if you've done that math up front, you do the coaching and you invest in them as leaders and self-leaders that they can have that thought process around their own W-2, around their own quota, what they want to hit. And you should be able to have that conversation like, this is an amazing place for you and you are going to just destroy it and I'm going to help you every step of the way. Or we're not the right fit, right? So I think, but the way I've seen it and I think the way you've seen it a lot is, oh, here's, a, here's both a carrot and a stick, right? that's pulled out of the thin air and it's used to make the investors happy. And that's a terrible way to go about things. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Great answers. Really appreciate it. Unfortunately, we sort of run out of time, but I want to thank everybody for participating in this conversation today. And before we go, just tell people what the best way to connect with you is and learn more about what you're doing. So Carol, we'll start with you. Uh, the best way to connect with me is on LinkedIn. You can easily search for my name and find me there. Or you can also go to carolmahoney.com. Don't forget the E in Carol and in Mahoney, as well as my website, which is unboundgrowth.com. And yeah, look for your new book coming up soon. Paul Fuller. September 5th. Oh, September 5th. There we go. September 5th. I get an advanced copy. I can't wait to read it. That's going to be awesome. You absolutely can, Paul. We'll talk after. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, Paul Fuller, I am with Membrane. Uh, same thing. Best way is LinkedIn. I, I love LinkedIn. And it's Membrane, M-E-M, -E and then Brain, like the, the one in your head. So Membrane. You can also go to our website at Membrane.com and uh, reach out there. And myself or any of the team will get back to you. But yeah, me personally, LinkedIn is a spot to go. Perfect. And finally, Sean Burke. Yeah, we'll make it up. Then is by the way, I'd be curious to see well, if every LinkedIn single one of your one of your guests says LinkedIn. But if you're searching for my actual <laughs> link, it's it's Sean H. Birch Burke because there's a Sean Burke out there that literally like commands every social media name of Sean Burke when they come out. So I always have to use Sean H. Burke. So that's it. <laughs> I had that problem with Andy Paul on Twitter. There's some guy that had it and was not posting on it at all. Like, yeah, had got it when Twitter first came up and it was just completely inactive. I spent ages trying to get Twitter to take him down and finally gave up. 
So anyway, my sad story. So yeah, thank you everybody for joining in and look forward to having you all come back sometime in the future and we'll do this again. So have a good weekend. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode of the WinRate Podcast. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guests, Carol Mahoney and Paul Fuller, for sharing their wisdom with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, the WinRate Podcast with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you so much for that. Also, don't forget to subscribe to my weekly newsletter. It's called WinRate Wednesday, and each week... Not surprisingly, on Wednesday, you'll receive an actionable tip that you can put to use in your selling to become a more effective seller and to improve your win rates. Again, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Mm -hmm.